0: Listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, as I kind of said, um, and as you saw, read, Nehemiah 6 is filled with these really troubling and threatening situations that Nehemiah is finding himself in. Um, In Nehemiah chapter 4, as I said, we saw these external threats to to the the kingdom project of rebuilding Jerusalem, and in Nehemiah 5, we saw threats inside the community, that there's oppression and greed that are threatening the community of God in Jerusalem. And this week we see both and more. We see external threats. We see religious threats from the prophets. We see internal conspiracy among the elite of the Jewish, um, the, the Jewish upper class. And that's a lot in and of itself, but there's two things I kind of want to guide us through after we walk through this narrative together. And The first is that um, Nehemiah is going to give us a picture as God's people of how we can respond to trials specific trials, but in general, how we can posture ourselves to be faithful when things are hard. And second, um, it's meant to point us to the trials of Jesus. We're supposed to look at the trials of Nehemiah and think as God's people about the trials of Christ and how Jesus has overcome the trial of all trials. So uh, let's start by orienting ourselves to Nehemiah's trials by reading again in chapter 6, Um I'm calling these sections—you know, there's three paragraphs, uh, I think, most likely, in your Bible. Um, and so each of those paragraphs is kind of can, can, uh, conforming to, like, one section of trials. So the first trial is found in verse 1 um, all the way through 9. It says this. Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had set up the doors and the gates— Sanballat and Geshem said to me, uh, sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Heciferim in the plain of Ono. Ono. Um, the plain is called that because, Ono. Oh no. I'm kidding. I made that up. Um, that's not true. It's just called the plain of Ono. I digress. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent a messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should this work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same way four times. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and that letter was written something more insidious. This is a charge that Sanballat is leveraging against Nehemiah. It says this, it is reported among you, uh, or among the nations, and Geshem also says it, "...that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you, Nehemiah, have set up the prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah. Nehemiah sent to him, saying, "...well, no such thing as you have said has been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind." For they all wanted us to be frightened, thinking their hand will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hand. So at this point in the project, um, the city has a wall that is complete, but the the gates have not been raised. Therefore, a wall without gates is is pretty pointless when it comes to defending against your enemies. So there's still this grave threat from the nations. Um, but the city is strong, and it's standing as a signal to the surrounding nations, specifically the enemies of God, that Jerusalem is gaining strength. But remember, Nehemiah's goal in rebuilding Jerusalem, as we've heard him say time and time again, was to honor Yahweh, to bring glory to God, and to reestablish the temple as the place of God's worship in the city of God's people. And he also says this city is meant to be the blessing of For the nations. It's not meant to rebel against the nations. It's meant to bless the nations. So the nations swell in their threat, right? They're threatened by Nehemiah and this undertaking. And even more, they're threatened by the fact that this project is very nearly complete. So they see their opportunity as dwindling, right? They're thinking, okay, the walls are up, the gate isn't up. If we can get Nehemiah to come out now and kill him, we might afford this thing. Um, They're persistent, right? They do this four times, and then the fifth time, they, uh, they use a malicious and um, a false tactic to try and lure Nehemiah out. Um, they want to incite Nehemiah's anger so that they can get him to a vulnerable place and kill him, right? Because they're telling Nehemiah lies about himself. And Nehemiah knows the lies. But Nehemiah does not come out. Um, he says instead— this is all false. I do not intend to rebel. I do not intend to be the king. And we're going to see he's certainly not inside of the prophets to say this. They're saying kind of the opposite. And so he says, I'm not going to do it. And then Nehemiah does something which we would be, uh, it would be well for us to learn from. He says a quick and effective prayer, but now God strengthen my hands. Um, Continuing on, the second section in verse 10, we shift inwards. There's an inward religious threat um, in the the form of this prophet. It says this, verse 10. Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetebel, who was confined to his house, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. He's talking about um, those same enemies, Sanballat, Tobiah. Um, And he tells Nehemiah, they're going to come kill you, so let's lock ourselves in the temple so they can't kill you. But I said, Nehemiah said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a name, a bad name, in order to taunt me. Remember, he prays, Tobiah and out, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So what we have here is the prophets of Israel working with the enemies of God's leader, Nehemiah, to conspire against him and trap him in sin. Right? Nehemiah is... Is being lured by Shemaiah to fear for his life and as a result go into the temple, lock himself in, and find safety. But Nehemiah knows this is not a safe place for me. Here's what he means when he says says that it wouldn't be safe for him to do that. Um, Nehemiah is not a priest. So if you're not a priest in the nation of Israel, there are only very few specific times you are allowed to enter the temple without uh, breaking God's law. So Nehemiah knows that, okay, I'm not a priest. I can't just walk into the temple anytime I choose. Further, and this is, this is not confirmed in Nehemiah, but this would be um, a historical reality most likely for a man like Nehemiah. Remember in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king of Persia, and the cupbearers to the king of Persia were all historically eunuchs just so that they would not procreate, they could not take wives, and they would serve the king all of their days. So Nehemiah comes from this, so it's it's likely that he was a eunuch, and Deuteronomy tells us eunuchs are not allowed in the temple either. So there's two reasons Nehemiah is thinking "A, a, a, a prophet of God is telling me to go into the temple. That doesn't sound like something God would say. The final thought in Nehemiah's mind most likely is a story from 2 Chronicles chapter 26 in which a Israeli king named Uzziah goes into the temple to burn incense. The priest there says, you must not enter the temple, Uzziah. You are not a priest. And Uzziah leaves immediately, but he doesn't leave unscathed. He's immediately stricken with leprosy. So Nehemiah is thinking... A person like me can't go into the temple and live. Therefore, why out of fear of my life being taken by my enemies would I go and break God's law and therefore be killed? Like, for Nehemiah, it doesn't make sense. And even if he does emerge unscathed, he says, even if I live after hiding in the temple, my name will forever be associated with his sin. The enemies of God will look at Nehemiah and say, we can't follow that leader. He breaks God's law. So Nehemiah just, he, he refuses to break God's law in order to be safe, And we need to acknowledge that the prophet Shem- Shemaiah, it, he's using his position and authority as a prophet of Israel to manipulate and abuse Nehemiah. Right? The truth is, he's a false prophet. Nobody is coming to kill Nehemiah that night. Like, Nehemiah lives out the rest of the book with nobody having come to kill him. So the prophet spoke with his authority as a prophet, he goes to Nehemiah and says, This is a prophecy of the Lord. They are coming to kill you tonight. Doesn't come true. He uses his power and position in order to lure Nehemiah into sin and hope to kill him or at least tarnish his name. It's egregious. And Nehemiah does not take the bait. Let's finish up the reading. Um, Verse 15, this is the third section of what's going on as far as the trials of Nehemiah are concerned. But it starts with something encouraging. It says this, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. But then he reminds us of another trial. He says... Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Tobiah, remember, is an enemy of Nehemiah. He very much wants Nehemiah to die. It says, For many in Judah were bound by oath to Tobiah, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son, Jenahona, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechi, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. So first, um, the wall is finished, but the trials are still crashing like waves over Nehemiah and his life and his leadership, right? So it's almost like we get to verse 15, and there's an exacerbated tone in the way that that I'm reading, admittedly, (laughs) Uh, Nehemiah's words here. So the wall was finished. We finished the project. But then uh, he does point us to something gloriously true about the project that that what the goal was is starting to come to pass. This is what happens. Um, The enemies of God's people in the surrounding nations are realized something. The project was enormous, the threats were great, there were internal threats, there were external threats. There were discouragement from the Jewish people to Nehemiah and the righteous and repentant builders of the wall. And yet God accomplished these things in only 52 days through Nehemiah and through the people of Israel. Right? Like the wall of Jerusalem stands in the midst of all of these threats. The surrounding nations are starting to see this and they're wondering— how these oppressed people, with the odds stacked against them both internally and externally, how they could have accomplished something like that. And so this apologetic starts to ripple out into the nations. An apologetic is simply a defense for God's existence, right? The nations are saying maybe Yahweh, maybe the God of Israel, empowered them to do this. And so we're told they they, grow—they shrink in their own self-esteem meaning they start to worry about their strength in light of the strength of the God of Israel. It's a very good result. It's also the result Nehemiah has been talking about this whole time, that Jerusalem being rebuilt would give God glory in the nations and they might bless the nations. So we're starting to see what Nehemiah has been leading towards come to pass. But simultaneously, we learn about This man, Tobiah, who is an enemy of Nehemiah, we've been told chapter and chapter again, right? He very much wants Nehemiah dead. And we learn about all of these nobles or the elite, the upper class in Judah, in the nation of Israel, who are connected to Tobiah by oath. And we learn that Tobiah is very much among the upper class. Like all these names, people reading the names listed as connected with Tobiah would have known who those people are. These are very powerful, upper-class Jews in and around Jerusalem. And yet, Tobiah is not a righteous man. Tobiah has been against the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He's been against Nehemiah. And there are all these upper-class Israelites who are bound to Tobiah by oath, meaning they had business contracts or uh, marriage contracts related to Tobiah. Remember, this is a time of great famine. And all the people of Israel who are in Jerusalem are not working uh, the fields and making money. They're building the city. They're working on something that's going to bring them no profit and has only brought them taunting and threat. And so a lot of them have sold themselves into bondage or oath. They've made deals with the devil. They've made deals with Tobiah, this enemy of them. And so for Nehemiah, it's really a palpable betrayal of his people. Right? And we get this narrative that um, that these people are in Nehemiah's presence, right? Like last, last week in chapter 5, we read about Nehemiah's table. And at Nehemiah's table, there was—there were beautiful food, fruit in abundance, bread in abundance, wine, we are told, flowing in abundance. And we're also told that Nehemiah is supplying all of that himself with his own dollar and out of his own resources. So these— upper-class elite were likely reclining at Nehemiah's table, and yet they were bound in oath to his enemy, Tobiah. And more than that, they're in Nehemiah's presence, knowing that Nehemiah knows that Tobiah wants to kill them, and they're saying, Nehemiah, let me tell you about some good things Tobiah is doing. We love Tobiah. And everything Nehemiah says, they're reporting back to Tobiah. They're like spies among his midst, yet they're literally his brothers and sisters. Nehemiah's brothers and sisters. Um, it's a betrayal. And we're told that Nehemiah, he kind of just takes it, right? He kind of just lets these betrayals and these pleasantries being told to him about his enemy, the one who wants him dead, he just lets it happen. Um, and then we're told the threats even escalate to Tobiah sending Nehemiah an onslaught of threatening letters, similar to those that we got at the beginning of the chapter. So that's, just, that's how chapter six ends. It doesn't end with, like, this cheery, The wall was built. Everybody experienced rejuvenation and healing, and everybody became believers of Yahweh followed. Him. Like, it ends in this kind of— the trials of Nehemiah are just waning on him. They're wearing him out. Um, and I think it's just worthwhile to look at how Nehemiah holds carries himself as a, as a man of faith in and through these trials. Like in the first section, Nehemiah doesn't, like where the enemies are inviting Nehemiah to come out and stop working in order that they might kill him, Nehemiah just doesn't take the bait. He first doesn't take the bait because he's just focused on the wall. He's focused on the mission at hand. He's like, I'm not going to mess with all that. I've got a, a city to build. God has given us a mission. and We've got to let's focus on that. I'm not going to mess with all this, all these lies and rumors about who I am, what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I know who I am. I'm not going to mess with it. And then when the, the big lie comes out, Right, that Sam Ballard says, Hey Nehemiah, you really need to come meet with us because we've heard that you're starting a rebellion and that you want to be king. Well, Sam Ballard knows that's a lie, and Nehemiah, his response is just stop lying. I know you're making that up. I know my thoughts and my mission and my my motivations for this project are pure. You're trying to kill me. Well, as believers, we have. Uh, we've talked about this a couple weeks now, we believe in a spiritual enemy, in Satan and his demons. And Satan, throughout scripture, is called the prince of lies. Starting with the first lie in the garden where he says, did God really say that? And he tricks Adam and Eve into sinning. Well, here we have very much a similar idea. And so as Christians... Um, Satan and his demons want us and want to tell us lies about ourselves. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I, I certainly have. That, um, that I will hear thoughts that, that I'm telling to myself that say, nobody likes you. That nobody cares about you. That people don't want you in community. Um, that you're not worthy of love. That you're too sinful? Like, these are similar lies, and, and the way Satan wants to lie to us, in large part, is to get us alone. Because when we're alone, we're much easier easier to deal with for Satan than when we are together. Right? And we have brothers and sisters around us speaking truth in our lives, praying for us, reading the word of God in truth, and saying, that is being made up. Those are lies that are being made up. None of what you're saying is true. It's made up from your own head is what Nehemiah tells the enemies who are lying to them. And as Christians, we would do well to take our thoughts captive when the enemy wants to tell us that we are alone or not worthy of love. And we should say, those are lies. I have brothers and sisters here in my parish or in my Sunday gathering who are telling me the opposite. And in fact, God's word says that Christ will never abandon us. And then I, I think just very practically we can learn from Nehemiah about the small one-off prayers that are so meaningful and we can send up throughout the day and just say things like, But now, O God, strengthen my hands. It's all he prays. It's not eloquent. It's not long. It's not theologically impressive. It's simply an appeal to God. It's a good word. In the second section, Nehemiah is being told again false prophecies being told lies, but this time it's by the religious, by the prophet. Um, and Nehemiah does something that we would be good to learn from. He, he tests what the prophet is saying against God's word. Right? He, he knows the law, he knows what Deuteronomy says about the temple, he knows the stories of King Uzziah who's been stricken with leprosy for even walking into the temple. So Nehemiah is weighing, okay doesn't say that god doesn't direct me to sin in order to save myself i think this is super apt for us as we are men and women who are often trying to make decisions about what our future might look like or hold whether that's vocationally or geographically or or whatever we what are we to do what is god's will for us to to do in these decisions that we make relationally or vocationally or, or what have you well first God does not demand that you sin in order to bring him glory. So, I mean, he is never going to mandate that you sin in order to bring him glory. It's just not the way God works throughout all of Scripture. And so, Nehemiah knows this. And on the contrary, for us as Christians, like the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a gift not to cause us to sin, but to grow us away from sin in righteousness, fighting against our flesh, leaning into the spirit of God. So Nehemiah holds fast to the truth of God's word and in the end when he he has been betrayed by the religious elite of Jerusalem by all the prophets who are conspiring against him for the sake of his death he does not seek an uprising he does not elicit the true people of Israel to fight against the prophets he instead just says another quick prayer he appeals to God and, and God's justice remember them God. Remember what they've done, and I will stay focused. And finally, um, Nehemiah is looking at the finished work of the wall, right? He, he looks at all that he has done, and we've read Nehemiah thus far, and we know that it's impressive. Nehemiah has been a Faithful and godly leader. He has called his people to righteousness. He has invited them to his table. He's been hospitable. He's been loving. He's been communal. He's invited people in. And yet when the city is finished, Nehemiah takes none of the credit and ascribes it all to God's glory. And the only thing he really celebrates when the wall is finished is that the nations are getting an apologetic for how great Yahweh is. So, we as Christians, we, and we've talked about this throughout Nehemiah, but I'll remind you, like we have this mission. We have a church to build, and Revelation tells us that the new Jerusalem is very much the bride of Christ. So, Jerusalem here is meant to, meant to be pictured by the church in the New Testament. And so, as we are completing this mission, as any brick is added to the fold, as anybody is brought into saving faith as Christ, we can only ascribe glory and reverence and gratitude to God, not ourselves. Just like Nehemiah um, and the people of Israel, when the project gets done, they don't say, we did that. They say, look what God did in spite of our imperfection, our anxiety about this project. Look what God did. As we wrap up um, this morning, I want us to turn to Jesus all throughout the story of Nehemiah, we've been looking at how the city of Jerusalem has pointed to the church of Christ and how Nehemiah is this wonderful and righteous and faithful leader of God's people and in this moment, very much appointed by God, and yet he's just a shadow of the leader we have in Jesus. Um, Some of these trials correspond to Jesus' trials. Here's one. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is in the wilderness, his enemy, Satan, just like Nehemiah's enemies, tell him lies about himself. Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, make bread out of these rocks. He says, if you're the son of God, how about you throw yourself off the temple and see if the angels save you? And he says, hey, the son of God— Wants authority or is due authority? If you worship me, you can skip the whole cross stuff and have authority. Jesus' response to this is a picture, is, is foreshadowed by Nehemiah's response, right? Like Jesus knows the scripture. He knows that Satan is twisting God's word to say things that doesn't. He knows Satan is lying to him about himself, and he says, be gone, Satan. He said, I know the truth. You're making it up out of your head. We cannot you cannot fool me. Jesus speaks against the enemy in truth. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 9, moving on, Jesus is healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day of rest, which the Pharisees and the scribes, which are very similar to the prophets in Nehemiah, the, the religious elite, come along and they look at Jesus doing these healings on the Sabbath, and they say, Oh, we we maybe we caught Jesus in sin. And if word gets out that Jesus is doing something he shouldn't be doing on the Sabbath, when he should be resting, he's healing somebody, then maybe we will give his name a bad one, and all of this will stop. All of this following of Jesus, all of this miracle and healing, and the, the swelling crowds around him—maybe all this will stop if it just gets out that he's sinful. So they go to him, seizing their opportunity, go to Jesus, and Jesus gives them an understanding about what it means to heal and what it means to be resting. Jesus says, well, first of all, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I define rest. In fact, ultimate rest is defined by being in me, is what Jesus will tell them. But he says there's no sin here. If you guys would go save a sheep from jumping off a cliff on the Sabbath, surely I can heal a man who's sick. It's not only not sin, it's required, Jesus will say. We're told they leave there conspiring how to destroy him. Just like the prophets are conspiring with the enemies of God on how to destroy him. But the Pharisees, um, they leave trying to kill, figure out how they will kill Jesus. And just like how Nehemiah is betrayed in section 3, probably like the picture of Nehemiah at this table where he's supplying the sustenance and the wine and the abundance and the rest, um, there were those in Nehemiah's midst who were betraying him. They were literally bound by oath to the enemies of Nehemiah, and they were trying to turn Nehemiah over to the enemies of Nehemiah and the enemies of Jerusalem. Well, Jesus knows this very well. On the night that he is betrayed, Jesus is at his table, supplying his body and his blood to a man named Judas, who is there. And Judas will go on in mere hours to betray uh, Jesus, what it says in Matthew 26, 47, While he was speaking, while Jesus was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from chief priests and elders of the people, and the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one that I kiss is the man Seize him, and he came up. To Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friends, do what you came to do. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Jesus lets it happen for the glory of God. And in some, like Nehemiah, Jesus knows temptations and lies from the enemy Jesus knows what it feels like to be abused and tricked and and tried to be made to be a sinner by the religious elite. And he knows what it's like for those closest to him, but to betray him. But the ultimate trial that Jesus endures is one that Nehemiah does not relate to in chapter 6. It's the trial of all trials. Jesus is marked bloody and beaten, carrying a cross, wearing a crown. He's called, just like Nehemiah was was lied to and said, you, you want to be king of Judah? Well, Jesus is called king of the Jews and mocked. It was a lie for Nehemiah, it's actually a lie for Jesus. Jesus has no business or desire to be king of the Jews. He has every intention to be king of the universe. He has every intention to be king of all. Jesus is hung and tortured and thirsty, and he has every right and ability and all power to stop the earth to blot out the sun in order to put an end to the suffering he's enduring on the cross but he does not do it because this t- trial demands completion and he's the only one who can complete it this is the gospel jesus died for the sake of our sins he pays the punishment that our just and merciful god demanded of sin the punishment Required is death, and Jesus, the sinless one, passes this trial of all trials. As a result, no one, no one who finds himself in Christ will find themselves forsaken by God like Jesus was as he hung on the cross. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one who finds himself in Christ will feel the weight of their sin. Ultimately, because Christ has taken every sin you have done and ever will do, and a thousand beside the sins of all the brothers and sisters in Christ in the world global, he has taken the sins of his people. And just like the wall of Jerusalem and Nehemiah is complete against all odds, Christ is raised from the dead, and in doing so, he inaugurates a new building project for the city of God, the building of the church. He empowers it. He is empowering it right now and he is currently the cornerstone of the great city that we build. If the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, we are told in Scripture. Why should we fear? When all of this reaches completion, for eternity, we along with the brothers and sisters we have in Christ across the globe will give God the glory and worship together for the work will have and sustained by God and so as we come to the table we can remember the work that Christ is doing in us, through us how he sustains us at our table at his table, how he forgives our iniquities how he has saved us for the work of building his city and that as the work goes forward he will get the glory for it so we come to the table and we can pray but now, oh God strengthen our hands in the meal. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you, a great leader. We need you to strengthen our hands by the Spirit. Would you empower us for the work of ministry? Would you protect us against the lies of the enemy that we tell ourselves? Would you give us safety and solitude in community by being well-known and knowing well our brothers and sisters? Would you let us weigh the advice of the world in or out of the church against your scripture, knowing that you will never lead us to sin for your glory. Would we ascribe your glory and goodness to every man or woman who is invited in and accepts the invitation of redeeming love the of and say, you are good and glorious. You have done it, Lord. You've chosen to use us as imperfect and anxious as we are. Strengthen our hands for this mission. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We worship you. And we give you glory this Sunday and all. In your name we pray. Amen.